Welcome to the CRISPR revolution. This is CRISPR Cuts, a podcast dedicated to the world of genome engineering. Take a break and join us as we guide conversations with an expert CRISPR cast about this cutting edge science. Welcome to CRISPR Cuts. Today, our guest is Dr. Jesse Bume. He's a principal investigator at the Broad Institute and the chief scientific officer of Breakthrough Cancer Foundation, which we'll learn more about in today's episode. Welcome, Dr. Jesse. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. We are excited to learn more about your work. So could you start with telling us about your professional journey and what you currently do at the Broad Institute? Absolutely. So I grew up right when the Human Genome Project was beginning to become a reality. My teens, there was the sense that something big was brewing. And when I was in college, the first draft of the Human Genome Project had just been created. So it was this unbelievable moment for science in which people from all corners were thinking about science differently. How do you get teams of people together across disciplines, across organizations to tackle amazing challenges? And that was just very different than how I had observed or thought about science being done when I was in high school. I thought science was something that you did in a laboratory in a dark basement somewhere on your own. And so I went to MIT as an undergraduate and learned a lot about team science and I did my graduate work at the Dana-Farber, never really having left Boston too much and just really became amazed at what was happening after the human genome in the sense of how we could use this information to begin to think about understanding the broken genes that cause disease and then ultimately treating disease. And and it was around that time where the Broad Institute was getting launched, the first major collaboration between Harvard and MIT to try to utilize the fruits of the human genome and the technologies that were used in DNA sequencing and more recently CRISPR to try to really solve problems that were plaguing the field. And, And I've been at the Broad for 15 years ever since, really enjoying the intersection of solving cancer, that's my background, but also solving some of the structural problems that are getting in the way of scientific teams to work together. And so I'm pleased to talk more about both of those disciplines, but that's been a joint passion of mine over the course of my career. That sounds great. So currently in your group at Broad Institute, what type of projects do you focus on? So we're trying to figure out how to kill cancer cells, which seems like a very routine, simple-minded sort of question, but it's really the essence of making what is called precision cancer medicine a reality. We all imagine a future in which a patient could go into their doctor, the doctor could read off of the molecular profile of the tumor and would tell the patient, here are the drugs or the combination of drugs that are predicted to be useful in your tumor with your genetic fingerprint. So that concept of precision medicine, which grew out of the Human Genome Project, is an amazing concept. It's working for around 20, maybe 25% of cancer patients today, but it's not working for everyone. And the reason it's not working for everyone is in most cases, even when we get the genetics of a patient's tumor, we can't decide exactly what drugs to give them. My work at the Broad Institute over the last 15 years or so is to try to use laboratory technologies to solve that challenge. 
growing cells from patients' tumors and then using every drug that's ever been created for any disease and then this new genome engineering CRISPR technology to cut every gene one by one, even if we don't have a drug, to figure out in the lab what are the vulnerabilities of every type of cancer growing in dishes. And we call that project a cancer dependency map, kind of like a, a Google Maps might tell you what are the weak points in the traffic patterns to help you get to work. The dependency map is aimed at finding all of the Achilles heels of every type of cancer in the lab. And we think that will be a foundational starting point so that drug companies everywhere can choose the best targets to go after for the next generation of, of cancer therapies. So that's the big arc of what the team at the Broad is working on. My laboratory within that team is especially focused on rare and underrepresented cancers. So almost 20% of all cancers are from a very rare cancer type. And those patients feel isolated. They're often geographically segregated. And we've been working to solve that challenge and use the fruits of the dependency map and bring those to bear on rare tumors just as much as common tumors. That sounds really fascinating. I was curious if your work at the Breakthrough Cancer Foundation is that directly relevant to what you do in the lab or how different is that? Let's talk more about that. Yeah, so over the last 15 years at the Broad, we've seen the amazing potential for team-based science. How do you get scientists from different labs, from different organizations, maybe even from different countries, to work together seamlessly to identify a really big challenge blocking the field and incentivize them to work together to address that challenge. And, and I've been fortunate to be part of a number of activities within the Boston area with the Broad Institute as the backbone that has learned a number of the lessons of how to get this right from a technology standpoint and from a cultural standpoint. And we're starting to see the fruits of that in the Boston area for cancer. There's never been so much collaboration for cancer and we're just very excited that the Broad has played a small role in that. Several years ago, a family identified a new opportunity and agreed to donate $250 million to try to stimulate a similar flavor of team-based cancer research, not only within the Boston area, but across the nation, starting with five leading cancer centers, Dana-Farber in Boston, MIT in Cambridge, Mass, MD Anderson in Texas, Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York City, and Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. And this family aspired for teams to come together to try to build out team-based cancer projects across these five organizations in much the same way that the Broad Institute and many others had shown was possible locally. And a long time ago, really prior to the COVID pandemic, we sort of thought oh, it was really difficult to make team-based science projects work because Everyone knows you only want to work with people that you know, who are in the lab next to you, who might be in the building next to you, because that's what builds trust. But we've all woken up from the fog of this kind of COVID pandemic in the last year and a half, just totally in awe of what's been possible across nations, across countries, using virtual tools for scientists to come together and just tackle amazingly impossible challenges, making COVID vaccines in under a year, solving intricacies of the COVID virus. So 
we're now seeing an opportunity and we're trying to capitalize on that opportunity with this new foundation called Breakthrough Cancer to utilize the same sense of urgency that the international scientific community felt for COVID and to bring that urgency to the team-based collaboration in cancer. And so I've been fortunate to join on in the last couple of months as the chief science officer and we're beginning to work with teams across those five organizations to articulate big visions, ambitious visions, way bigger than themselves or their institutions that are preventing progress in a number of very difficult cancer types. And over the next few months, we plan to fund serious projects, $20 million or more in a number of cancer types to try to solve really intractable or even impossible sounding challenges. So I'm really excited about the organization and I'm also excited about this organization launching at this just unprecedented moment for international science. It it couldn't be better timing. Yeah, absolutely. I've heard of so many collaborative projects that have fruitfully been completed during COVID. And I think that has also led to scientists just realizing how much impact they can make when people work together across the globe, irrespective of, you know, what situation we are in. So this definitely sounds very promising. It's really interesting that most of us just assume that science was always the way it is, that our organizations and the way we execute on scientific projects, it's just kind of always been that way. But one of the things I've learned in the last couple of years is the structure of science in the United States, you know, academic labs doing things kind of on their own, industry being kind of a different beast. That structure largely emerged after the end of World War II when it was decided that rather than the government executing large sort of team-based projects, a lot of the innovation and ingenuity would be found in academic organizations. So everything we know about science today in the U.S. was just invented 70 or 80 years ago, and we all kind of take it for granted. So I think we're all sensing an opportunity. We've all been unanchored from whatever we thought was normal a year ago. And I think there's a now, when you pull up your anchor and you decide where to sail your ship and set a new anchor, and you realize that everything about science and the structure of science is subject to change. I think we're starting to see a lot of creative thinking, both around scientific challenges, but also around structural challenges. And that's one of the things that we hope to capitalize on the years ahead. Right. As a part of the Breakthrough Cancer Foundation, is that largely focused on, say, the discovery part of cancer, or will it also focus on actually patient treatments or trials? What is the scope of the projects that you have there? So the overarching scope is to try to bring the worlds of clinical cancer science and laboratory cancer science closer together than ever before. Put patients really at the center. We think scientists do work in cells and they do work in mice and they do work in other organisms, but we think more than anything we should be learning from every patient's experience. When a patient was given a drug and the tumor did not respond, why was that? When the patient received a drug and did respond, why was that? So we think in some ways patients should be the model organism and we should try to learn as much as possible directly from patient experiences and then utilizing patient samples and bringing those to the lab, utilizing technologies in the lab like CRISPR and others to try to figure out what happened in the clinic and why did it happen 
mechanistically. So the concept is to bring these worlds together of clinical and basic science and to put patients and the patient experience at the center as much as possible. We're realizing that there are types of, there are journeys, there are archetypes of scientific inquiry that most scientists would like just to be routine. And actually most patients and families probably assume a routine, including a scientist comes up with a hypothesis in the lab and very quickly tests that in a patient to see if it's right, and then utilizes some next generation technology to figure out, did they get the answer correct? That concept of moving quickly between the lab and the clinic is just not actually happening. It takes only 5% of ideas from the lab or even tested in patients. And to get one idea tested might take 10 years to organize. You have to know the right people and raise the right money. And there's all these issues. So how do we really make the process of science and testing in patients extremely iterative. That's kind of goal number one. And, and goal number two is to intervene as early as possible. As you and many of your listeners will know, cancers are often detected late, and it's often too late to intervene. There's already billions of cells, and even if you kill tens of millions of them, there are still tens of millions left behind. So can we shift the curve and find individuals that are at high risk using genetics or other tools that are just walking around? and monitor them much more closely, and then intervene, whether that's through vaccination or therapeutics or something else, so that they never develop late stage cancer. So we're challenging teams to come up with projects that align with those two conceptual areas of framework, and we call those breakthrough cancer project archetypes. I see. You mentioned next generation technologies and in your previously in your lab as well, you said you work on CRISPR. So let's talk about how the introduction of CRISPR has is kind of shaping this field or changing the course of the field as well. What do you think the introduction of this tool has done in cancer research? Yeah, so CRISPR has fundamentally changed everything, essentially overnight. And by overnight, I mean since 2013 or so, which is pretty much overnight in the last seven or eight years. And I'll give you a few examples. I think CRISPR is often viewed as a potential therapeutic tool. We, we read a lot in the news about the potential for engineering our way to challenges or engineering our way through challenges, developing CRISPR as a therapy, germline editing of embryos using CRISPR to eradicate disease. And some of that's happening and that's very complicated, of course, but what we're seeing is CRISPR having a transformative effect in the laboratory as a cancer research tool. Of course, a research tool in other diseases, but I'll focus for the sake of the discussion today on cancer. What a postdoctoral researcher can do today with his or her hands using CRISPR exceeds what they could have done 10 years ago by three or four orders of magnitude. They can block 10,000 20,000, maybe even 100,000 genetic elements in the genome or genes in just a month or so. And that would have taken hundreds and hundreds of careers just 10 years ago. So CRISPR is an incredibly precise tool. It's incredibly effective. The reproducibility of discoveries using CRISPR is high, given that the what one postdoc does in one lab and what one postdoc does in another lab are much more overlapping in terms of their results 
than ever before. We undertook a major set of analyses with our colleagues at the Sanger Institute in the United Kingdom who did a similar type of cancer dependency work, and we found that the two data sets using CRISPR were highly reproducible. So much more data, much more reproducible. CRISPR has also democratized access to this type of genome engineering technology. Ten years ago, it would have been very difficult to find all the ways that a drug becomes resistant to therapy or find all of the vulnerabilities in a cancer cell. But now, any lab can do this. They can purchase CRISPR reagents. They, in a, a weekend or a week, they can do an experiment. And what every lab could do just far exceeds what they could have done a long time ago. So in the space of cancer dependencies, in the space of drug resistance, understanding the mechanism of action of why drugs work the way that they do, which is a really important challenge for the field, and in general, promoting reproducibility and democratization of cancer research, I think we're just seeing uh, CRISPR absolutely transformative. I've never witnessed a revolution. I remember the very first few days where a few scientists were using earlier genome engineering tools and they were starting to dabble with CRISPR. And the tipping point from not utilizing this new tool to every single person across the whole organization using this tool was like 12 months. It was the fastest uptake of any new technology. So I think what's often overlooked in the media is just the incredible change that's happening to preclinical research. And those activities will, of course, lead to better, more accurate, more efficacious, and more successful drugs in the near future. Instead of cancer drug discovery companies working on random targets that they think are interesting, they can just look up in the dependency map what are the best targets. And so I think we're gonna find in the decade ahead, a couple of decades ahead, that cancer drug development will be more successful, perhaps cheaper, and with better patient selection because of all of the advances of CRISPR in the laboratory. So it's completely exciting and thrilling to be part of this at this moment. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think even CRISPR in this very short while has evolved so much with laboratories just adopting this tool from there to now everyone trying to do more than what they could ever do even say five years ago, right? So recently we spoke with NIH scientists about their ND project, which is like this large scale, you know, looking at hundreds of mutations in Alzheimer's and they basically created a set of disease models by just having all these variants done in different iPSC cells. So how do you think standardization of CRISPR or something like providing large-scale disease modeling cells, edited cells, how would that kind of play out in cancer and how would that help, say, Breakthrough Cancer Foundation or even your own work? Right, so the success of cancer research, of course, is predicated on having high-quality model systems. Even despite what I said before about making patients the best model system, we only have about 200 cancer drugs. You can't randomly test things in patients, of course, for ethical reasons, and you would want to anyway. And so we'll always need other types of model systems to support cancer research. So I think there have been a few new revolutions in building cancer models, CRISPR engineering being one of them, that I think bodes extremely well for the future of this space. I think the first 
our lab has utilized new organoid development technologies and a number of other technologies that are now allowing us to grow cells from a patient's tumor with success rates 30 or 40 percent. That's much higher than ever was achieved before. You might imagine that cells cut out of a patient's tumor just grow in a dish because they grow in a patient, but historically the success rates have been around 1%. So a number of new technologies like organoid development are allowing those success rates to be far higher. And that allows us to model a much larger fraction of tumors in the laboratory. But there are some genotypes and mutations that are not able to be modeled even with those new technologies. And that's where CRISPR can be very useful in, in the way that you just described, adding mutations that are missing in cancer, for instance, we think that we're ultimately going to need around 10,000 or 20,000 cellular models in the lab to fully capture all of human cancer. And today the field has about 2,000. So we're about an order of magnitude away from where we need to get to. So one way to fill that gap is enrolling more patients and giving them the opportunity to donate tissue, which we do, and growing organoids from them. But a lot of the rare genetic changes, the rare genotypes, are gonna be missing, a lot of the rare cancers may be missing for a long period of time because those patients don't happen to consent. And so when we see missing mutations, we can go in and use CRISPR to add a mutation that's missing because it's rare or because it's difficult to grow in the lab, or we can turn a mutation off and correct it back to what's called wild type and figure out how that changed the pattern of dependency. So I see these two revolutions, one in growing tumors, using organoid technology and then using CRISPR to manipulate the genome in those organoids as being really key to ensuring we have a complete collection of cancer models by 2030 or so. And I think that's an achievable goal for the field. And we only have to do it once as an international community. And is it any surprise that the whole world of prostate cancer millions and millions of men with prostate cancer, there are only six prostate cancer cell lines. So how could we possibly make progress in a disease like that if we only have six? For almost every type of rare cancer, we have zero. So how are we gonna make any progress for the 25% of patients with these tumors if we have zero cellular models? So these new revolutions in the lab, I think are gonna get us a long way there. We've been excited to build out a industrial platform, we call it the cell line factory, to try to move us in that direction. It sounds really exciting. Is that something that everyone has access to, or is this something that's specific at the Broad Institute? I think we recognized several years ago that every lab building their own cellular models was not going to be the solution to building 20,000 models that everyone across the globe could utilize. So we hypothesized that creating an international network of cell factories, of model factories, might be a good investment for governments across the world to make, and especially to ensure that all of the resulting models went into public databases that could be shared extremely broadly. And so this activity started at the Broad and has become an international network called the Human Cancer Models Initiative. And there are labs across the U.S., in the Netherlands, in Italy, in the United Kingdom, in Hingston, U.K., that are all working together to build out 
these new cellular models, and importantly, to deposit these into public databases, one is called ATCC, that allows researchers everywhere to access them. So we've created about 400 new cell models. We've sent around 300 of them to the distributor, and now researchers can begin accessing those models. And But a lot of this also requires a lot of attention upfront to engaging patients in the first place. Well, one of the reasons that researchers don't share cellular models is not because they have evil intentions, it's because the consent forms that were used to obtain the original tissue sample or the absence of consent, like in the infamous HeLa example, are not appropriate to allow for broad scale sharing. And so if your intention is to build resources like cellular models so that they can be shared infinitely with the entire globe, you need to start right at the beginning and engage patients in that process. And so to do that, we hypothesized that providing consent online in a very democratic sort of fashion for any patient anywhere in the United States with, in this case, a rare cancer, regardless of where they were seen, whether it was at a big cancer center or a small cancer center, every patient should have the right to donate, if they choose, his or her living tumor tissue for inclusion in a project like this. And so we put an online consent on the web and we utilized a number of social media channels and Twitter and Facebook to advertise this. And patients started sending their samples in and they started really being engaged in the project. And hundreds of samples from these rare tumor types came that wouldn't have come through ordinary mechanism. And because we've engaged patients early on, because the language of sharing cells, and sharing these tools, and utilizing them for CRISPR projects and all these things is part of the engagement with patients. We're really confident that patients are just fully bought in and are part of this process now as we share these more broadly with the world. That sounds amazing. Thanks for sharing that. One of the things that we've been discussing throughout right now is your two different roles, right? Like one as a CSO and then another as a PI of your own group. So personally for you, how is it balancing these two? Are they complementary? Is it very different working on these two different projects, let's say? No, it's extremely complementary. I've had the good fortune of getting a lot of help from my colleagues at the road to make this transition. I've, I've transitioned a number of the leadership responsibilities for this dependency map project and other activities to my colleagues at the road so that I had enough time to focus on this new initiative. I think that the two activities are highly complementary. I think what I see when I look out at the future of science and the future of cancer science in particular are new types of skill sets, new types of professional skill sets that I think the next generation of scientists would do well to train in that include technical skills, you know, how to do experiments and how to write papers and things like that, but also collaboration engineering and incentivizing people to work together and making it feel exciting for folks to work together. And so part of being a CSO is to create a culture and to create a framework to incentivize scientists to work together and pull together towards a common scientific strategy. And you can't really do that authentically 
without being a scientist yourself. I'm a baseball fan. I'm not sure if you like baseball or another sport, but some of the best baseball coaches are player coaches. They are players or they were just players very recently. And they're often able to strategically guide and coach the team because they're very close to the ball field. And I think the same goes for science. I think the best CSOs and the best CEOs and scientific leaders are scientists themselves and are still on the ground in the trenches doing science and feeling the pressure points and solving challenges and experiencing setbacks. So I view these two responsibilities, one of being a principal investigator and leading a lab and mentoring postdocs and carving out scientific strategy and motivating others well beyond my lab across many institutions, I see those as two halves of a whole. I feel excited to have the opportunity to play both roles. That's great. We'll end with a fun question, which is, you know, you just mentioned you're a scientist, have been a scientist for a while. What would have been an alternate profession if you were not a scientist? Well, I always wanted to be a baseball player growing up. I'm not sure I had the skill set for baseball, but I think in addition to baseball, I've always really enjoyed the outdoors. And so if money was no object, I think I would have created some sort of career in travel and being in the outdoors. I haven't thought about how to make money doing that sort of thing or how to save the world like I'm trying to do with cancer, but some activity that puts me in the mountains and in nature, I'm sure I would enjoy quite a bit. Oh, nice. That sounds lovely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. This was a very informative and great episode. Yeah, we look forward to hearing more about your research and we'll keep an eye out on both of your projects to see how they develop. Thank you, Meenakshi. Thanks for listening to CRISPR Cuts. I invite you to check out the Synthigo blog, The Bench, for more great CRISPR content. Please send us any feedback you have by contacting us on Twitter. And if you want to join in as a guest on our podcast, email us at crispercuts at synthigo.com. CRISPR Cuts is a scientific podcast by Synthigo. Produced by Kevin, Minu, and me, Bobby. Additional production by Resonate Recordings. Our cover art is by Jeff Merrick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.